electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. An hour from now, we get the latest Fed decision on interest rates. Stocks are in a holding pattern, as you can see ahead of that announcement. Dow's literally up 15 points. Bond yields are slightly down, though, especially after that cooler-than-expected producer price data this morning. The market is pricing in a full point of cuts next year as inflation has receded rapidly. Will Chair Powell push back on that today or not? Let's start there with full team coverage on the economy, the consumer, and the trades connected to the Fed's actions today. There's our whole roster of guests. Let's start with CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman in Washington. Steve, what's the scuttlebutt? Well, I think the Fed meeting today uh, pitched the market's desire to um, confirm its outlook for rate cuts against the Fed's desire to hold the line as long as it possibly can and not confirm those cuts. So it'll probably leave in the statement, the language where it's been signaling its bias to hike, saying it's still, quote, determining the extent of additional policy firming that may be appropriate. It'll keep that even while it's going to have been on hold for four months through today's meeting and six months uh, until that meeting happens in January. It signals its neutral, its bias to hike in that, but it also signals its bias to hike in the rates that, uh, the dot plot that it has. 12 had forecast an additional rate hike this year. Some of that may go away. 13 forecast cuts from that level uh, in 2024. Average cuts of half a point. Some of that may go away as well. The trouble for the Fed is inflation is falling everywhere, but in that core CPI we got yesterday. It's falling globally. It's in today's PPI, and it's already prompting forecasters to predict progress in next week's PCE, the Fed's preferred inflation indicator. All that's to say the market expectation for cuts is also data dependent. They're looking for a 46% probability of a cut in March, 81% come May, and darn certainty in June with 95% probability. The market's willing to bet that eventually the Fed and Chair Powell see what it sees about inflation. There's time yet for the markets and the Fed to come together on all this um, and even a grudging acknowledgement maybe today that if everything goes right for several months, then yeah, the Fed will cut. We'll see, Kelly. I'm looking, Steve, for the date on when we're going to get PCE. May, it, could this be right? December 22? Uh, December I, 22. Yeah, okay. part, of that, part of that data dump that we get before the holidays every year. You remember right. that. <laughs> so, so, so the economics reporter cannot take their Friday off before, thank, before Christmas. Never. And, and I think Never. the significance of that, a couple of things. Number one, PPI this morning has everyone revising down what they think that all-important reading will be for the Fed. And it, as Nick Timrose kind of points out today, core PCE, which we call it the Fed's uh, target, is 1.9% over the past six months already. So you could argue they're below target. It could be. I mean, next week could come in right at that 2% target. We'll see. Uh, even for the year over year, forget the three-month annualized. It could be lower than that. The other thing I've been looking at, Kelly, I know you want to get to the panel, is look at uh, a CPI X shelter. <laughs> it's down below 2% for several months now. Wow. Interesting. All right. As you said, let's do it. Stay with us, Steve. The market is hoping for both a soft landing and rate cuts next year on this falling inflation. But how likely is that to actually happen? Sarah Eisen asked Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, the former Fed chair, about that earlier on Squawk on the Street. My baseline is that 
will um, achieve a soft landing. Are there risks? Of course, there are risks. Um, we could experience another global shock that could be unsettling to that path, that could jolt inflation upwards or have adverse effects on the economy. Well, one of my next guests is still sees some bigger risks than that and is calling for a recession in 2024, maybe a mild one. Let's bring in Subhadra Rajapa, head of U.S. rate strategy at Society Generale. We also have Stephen Whiting, chief investment strategist at City Global Wealth Management Investments. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Subhadra, you guys have the recession call? We do. We have a recession penciled down for the middle of uh, 2024. Um, and I think that you're going to, it's, we think that it's going to be a mild recession and the Fed is probably going to have to act aggressively starting as early as the May meeting. We have about 150 basis points of cuts uh, penciled in for uh, 2024 and more in 2025. Uh, so we do think that this ultimately might end up being a very normal, uh, usual uh, type of rate cut cycle. And, you know, in this sort of context, I think that the Fed probably sounds a, a little bit more hawkish. There's no rush for the Fed uh, to suggest that they're going to cut um, rates. So we're pushing back on the market pricing of cuts for the March meeting. But a May rate cut seems very possible. Steve Whiting, I missed the CPI data yesterday, but I heard people saying it was a little bit on the on the hot end. Again, talk me through that. Is this is that report carry more weight? Do you think it could be a, a really dovish PCE report that could be to come? Um, and let me just point out, this is going to you know break our new graphics back there. But the five-year break-even inflation rate, 2.08 percent right now. Steve Whiting, that means they're so, almost yeah. the market almost has a missing their target to the downside right now before we even price in any real economic slowdown. You know, other than the recession call, we're all talking about really highly tactical, tiny, little insignificant shifts in the, in the history of, uh, of, of the story that we're going to be tell. I mean, central banks generally cared about inflation targets and whether they hit them over the course of a decade. You know, let's look back at the period after the global financial crisis. Well, we were below target for that decade. Now they're talking about whether or not we should adjust monetary policy a little bit up or down based on a, on, on a CPI report. I, I don't think that that's really what's going on. Um, so we've been managed, we've managed now to take inflation from 9% at the headline level down to 3% at a headline level, and there have been no jobs lost. Uh, and the labor market has shown signs of easing on the margins. I've lost 3.3 million job openings. Uh, but by and large, again, this has shown that supply shocks, um, upheaval in supply and demand mismatches, really generated the inflation in the last couple of years. Now, we can talk about the economy, but does the Federal Reserve need to punish the economy? Does it need to force up the unemployment rate uh, to get the inflation rate down to something that will look like target in the next few years? And we don't think that's the case. We think that the case is very clear here that a slowing in the labor market will be enough for them to move off of restrictive monetary policy a bit towards neutral. Um, I bear in mind in 10 of the last easing cycles, the Federal Reserve cut rates while employment growth was still positive, and the six-month average was 146,000 jobs hmm. uh, in that whole period, and we're including the Volcker Fed. So, Steve, uh, why don't you just follow up on that real quickly? What do you think Powell's going to try to say today? 
Well, I think he's going to say the Fed is still uncertain whether they've tightened sufficiently to guarantee that uh, they will meet their inflation target. And it's, of course, as Steve Leisman just said, you know, again, reinforcing their recent message. And all of that is fine because they can never be absolutely certain that they're going to hit their inflation target. But will he also, in questioning, again, entertain what does it take? Why would we be easing monetary policy without a collapse in the economy? What will it take to protect the economy? I I think, though, Steve Leisman, that the market's off to the races, you know, that, and that's kind of what I was saying there with that five-year break-even, yeah. which is extraordinary. You know, they're pricing in a point of cuts, next, and they're not even really pricing in an economic slowdown. This really seems to be a disinflationary loosening. Yeah, I mean, didn't Taylor Swift saying dove's going to dove or something like that? <laughs> I, I think those were the exact words that she used. Um, Uh, The market's going to price in what the market's going to price in. And I think, as I tried to indicate in my report, Kelly, I think they have a basis for it, that when you look into the data, that there is reason for them to believe the Federal Reserve will cut rates. And in a sense, it's kind of funny to say this. It's almost academic if Powell acknowledges it today or not. If you put up that graphic you just had of the wall showing the the, the rate hike, the the, the, the pause, the rate hike, and then the pause, pause, and then what will amount to another pause today, and the next time you're going to have an input is the end of January, it's going to be at that level where you would think for six months or so, if you're at a level, you should be at least close to being confident you're at the sufficiently restrictive level. So let's call it what it is. Let's call it neutral. That's where the Fed is right now. Um, I don't think there's any reason for it to be hiking anytime soon, not if the data break the way the data looks like it's going to break, especially because of the basis effects we have coming up. Now, the question becomes, I would note that Subhadra used the verb penciled in the recession. She did not use the word penned in the recession or etched in the recession. The question becomes, why does the Fed cut rates next year? And that'll be critical to the magnitude of the cuts that come. If the Fed is cutting rates because of the penciled in recession, that's another amount. And I think she already said 150 basis points. But if it does so because it needs to get less restrictive relative to the economy and not do what Stephen Whiting talked about, which is to punish the economy, then I think we'll have a more modest set of rate cuts next year. Yes, Subhadra, the the rate cuts when we have a risk, that's the easy call. The downturn, we all, you know, that's an easy script for the Fed to kind of use. The much more tricky one is the, the rate cuts without the downturn. And Look, we all here have been talking endlessly about how inflation rate falls, they can bring down the Fed funds rate. Is that really that hard to explain to the broad public? Why, why shouldn't they go ahead and do that? Um, they could. They, they did it back in the 90s, uh, and uh, Greenspan was able to orchestrate a soft landing. Um, but it's very unusual, and you just don't know how things are going to play out. Um, if you look at, uh, as you were mentioning, inflation break-evens have come down Core PC is starting to trend down quite meaningfully. Um, if you, let's say by the middle of next year, we're at 2.5% core PC and the Fed funds rate is at 5.5%. At that point, it gets you know, very obviously re- in restrictive territory. Yeah. And there could be a case made for the Fed to adjust policy, even if employment doesn't crack meaningfully. I mean, we do expect... Uh, employment to slow down in the first quarter quite let, meaningfully. Subhadra, let's yeah, put it slightly differently, which is to say this is a Fed that has almost the perfect situation right now. 
if they don't act, they're going to ruin it because they're going to move us into restrictive, like a three point restrictive policy is historically extremely restrictive. If they don't, if they do nothing, we're going to, we're heading in that direction. Yeah, and they want to most mostly see inflation durably head towards that 2% uh, inflation target. I mean, core PC is still you know, between 3 and 3.5%. Three and yes, it's trending lower, but they really want to see that get towards maybe 25 or anywhere between 25 and 3% before they cut rates. Because the last thing they want to do is to cut rates prematurely and then find out that inflation is starting to rise again. I mean, shelter inflation is still relatively sticky, although um, you know, the rest of uh, the, the basket is coming down nicely. So I think that they really want to see inflation durably towards heading towards uh, at least two and a half percent before they cut rates. It could just be, and I'll, I'll give you the last word, Steve, at least before we let you go. It, it could just be a while. Maybe it won't be a while. Maybe, you know, maybe the data will move in that direction. But it could be a while before we get the kind of prints that would really give them the confidence that they're looking for around, you know, two and a half percent or that range. I'll give Steve Whiting the last word. I just want to say just very quickly, Kelly, that, that I don't think the market and the Fed are that far off. I think there's time for them to come together, and I don't think they're on different pages when it comes to the reaction function. I think if inflation slows meaningfully for the next several months, the Fed could be talking about springtime or early summer rate cuts. If inflation is all right, maybe springtime. And Steve Whiting, then give us kind of the wrap on that. So, look, I hope Steve Leisman is right, again, that the Federal Reserve is on board for some easing of monetary policy, not forcing monetary policy to tighten, right, and to interact and cause a deeper downturn in employment. But the one thing that we all keep talking about is recession is this fixed thing that always behaves exactly the same way. The economy is behaving unusually right now. We're seeing a strong labor market and a lot of industries contract. Well, there's a, a difference coming ahead, and even if it doesn't fit this perfect recession, uh, Session scenario that everybody can trade in and out of the, the market, uh, out of it. The Federal Reserve should still react and do what their dual mandate suggests, and that's protect the labor market and slow inflation. All right. We will leave it there, everybody. Thank you. It'll be an exciting hour. Subhadra Rajapa, Steve Whiting, Steve Leisman, we'll see you shortly. Coming up, mortgage rates have dropped nearly a full point in less than two months, enough that some homeowners are able to refinance the unlucky ones who bought at the highs, but doesn't tip the scales for the broader housing market. Moody's chief economist Mark Zandi will join me with his view as homebuilder stocks continue to hit new all-time highs. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets. We'll call it a holding pattern. Dow is literally about unchanged. S&P up less than a point. NASDAQ down 10. 10-year yield right around 416. About 46 minutes to go until we hear from the Fed. The exchange is back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back, everybody. The rate on the 30-year fixed mortgage almost dipping below 7%, as you can see there, but we're still slightly above that right now. Borrowers taking advantage of that recent drop with refi applications actually jumping 19% last week. Demand for new mortgages was up slightly, still down 18% from a year ago, though. And my next guest doesn't see a meaningful turnaround in housing until rates are below 6%, and he doesn't see that happening until late 2025. 2025 or 2024? Let's ask Mark Zandi. He's chief economist at Moody's. Later, wait, I, now I'm getting confused, Mark. When do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, no, I, I, did I say, there was that a typo, 2025? No, I think 2024, by year, year end, tw- this time, Next year, I expect fixed mortgage rates to be around 6%. Okay. I mean, that's really not much yeah. because I guess I guess around 6% uh, number is different than it being 699 Uh Indeed. I mean, if, if you uh, kind of have a pulse on the market, every time mortgage rates rise north of 7, the market just goes ice cold. It's un- completely unaffordable. People stop uh, transacting. Home sales uh, just fall Get around six, it feels like life comes back into the market. And Kelly, longer run, you know, abstracting from the vagaries of the ups and downs and everything else in the business cycle, I think people should get used to fixed mortgage rates somewhere five and a half, six percent. So that's kind of really? where I think we should expect them long run. The new normal? Uh, well, that, I guess going back to the future, maybe that's kind of sort of where we were. We, you know, what was abnormal was the you know, long period after the financial crisis when interest rates were just depressed. Now we're getting back to something that's more consistent with a healthy economy. And I think, um, you know, 10-year treasury yield around four, and that would put the 30-year fixed at five and a half to six, something like that. Let me ask you something, and this is quickly turning into my chart obsession of the day. We're going to put up the five-year inflation break-evens again. 208 is the reading there, and I'm looking back at the history throughout the 2010s when mortgage rates were incredibly low. 208 is kind of where we were for that period as well. So based on what the market's telling us, why shouldn't we expect rates to go back towards what prevailed last decade instead of staying at much higher levels? Well, uh, you know, that gets to real yields, term premiums. Uh, you know, I do think uh, yeah. we're in a very different world. Uh, you know, uh, lots of ways of thinking about it, but just think about it in the context of inflation. In the period after the financial crisis, the Fed was working really hard to get inflation up. Inflation was suboptimal. You know, it was... Uh, uh, they kept their, their foot on the accelerator and, you know, that kept interest rates generally low. Now, on the other side of the pandemic, feels like we're in a different world with regard to inflation. You know, we're, we're deglobalizing. We've got transition costs around green energy. So it feels like inflation is going to be more of a headwind than a tailwind. Fed's going to have its foot more on the brake than the, than the accelerator. And therefore, you know, we get more normalized, you know, pre-financial crisis kind of interest rates. Is the biggest risk, and not, not to put you, you know, your equity analyst hat on here, but it's incredible to see how the new, uh, the home builders have been going to new highs constantly here, even as the housing market in general is completely frozen. It's like the flip side of the story. If we get a normalization in housing, is that the biggest headwind for the home builders? Anything that releases inventory back on the market, gets things back back to normal, does that ironically hurt the hottest segment of that market right now? Uh, not for a while. I mean, I think they've got a nice uh, demographic tailwind. I mean, they've got a couple things going. One is there's a very severe shortage of homes, you know, particularly at lower price points, affordable uh, housing. You know, by my calculation, we're short by about 1.7 million housing units. That's that's a lot of units. That's more than one year's worth of uh, production in a typical year. And they've got to make that up. And and then I do think there's, you know, underlying demographic demand. Here's the other thing, Kelly. Immigration is strong. I think uh, we're getting this, uh, the data coming in suggests that there's a lot more immigrants coming into the country than uh, has been the case historically. And of course, you know, mm-hmm. uh, more people, more households, more more housing. 
So I think, you know, for the next few, three, four, five, six years, I think the home builders have some really significant tailwinds that could help to support them. Uh, yeah, although I don't know, always think of that kind of immigration as driving household formation uh, so much as maybe literally being part of the renting population or something like that. Well, it's using, a, it's a, yes, yes, that's true. But it, I mean, it's adding to that, uh, the demand for the housing stock and, and therefore you know, lifts all boats, I think. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but you're right. No, and it, obviously anyone that displaces as a renter, maybe they move into the housing pool and so exactly. on. So going right. back to the Fed today, what do you expect to hear from Chair Powell? Not much. You know, I think the, the Fed has the economy right where they want it. Uh, you know, it feels like the job market's cooling uh, in a very graceful, orderly way. You know, wage growth is moderating and you know, pretty close to being consistent with their long-run inflation target. Inflation's coming in. Uh, it's still too high. Uh, but, you know, all the trend lines look uh, really good there. And, you know, uh, the forecasts seem uh, pretty clear that uh, we're going to get back to target sometime uh, this time next year. Financial conditions, you know, we can we can debate that a little bit. But, you know, stock prices, uh, bond yields, uh, value of the dollar, credit spreads, uh, underwriting standards all feel like, you know, in a pretty good spot. So they must feel, Chair Powell must feel pretty good about this. So I think his goal here is not to rock any boats, uh, you know, just say we're on track and you know, it feels like everything's moving in the right direction. Right. Although that said, I guess the million dollar question for you is, do you think that they should avoid further tightening? You know, do they do they have to cut rates, you know, pretty soon here, the way inflation's going? I, I, I don't think so. I, I certainly not raise rates. I don't see, you know, I don't see any reason why you would do that in the context of everything I just said. Uh, but, uh, you know, the question is, at what point do you start to lower rates? And I, I think they've got some time. I think they, they're going to wait until they they see that Zandi's forecast <laughs> about inflation coming to target is right. Uh, and that probably won't be until next late spring, summer. And once they come to that conclusion, then I think they'll start to lower rates. Here's the other thing. It's an election year, right? Mm. And I suspect all else being equal, they'd rather prefer not to move rates in, in any direction. They you know Once they do that, then they risk getting politicized and getting wrapped up in what's going to be a pretty... I think, uncomfortable election process. So I think they would err on the side of doing nothing, uh, but, but, you know, all else being equal. That's right. It is an election year on top of everything else. Mark, yep. thank you. We'll check back in yeah. soon. We appreciate it. Take Mark Zandi. That drop in mortgage rates we mentioned is boosting the home builders. The home construction ETF, the ITB, touching another all-time high today, and it's up 54% since January 1st. Pulte, DR Horton among the components hitting all-time highs, and those names are still trading at just about nine and ten times forward earnings. Same with Lennar. They report tomorrow after the bell, also around nine and a half times. We'll be listening for their updates on rates and incentives. Looking forward to that. Coming up, the top internet trades for 2024. JP Morgan's list is out. Amazon is number one. But some of their other calls are a little more interesting. Like this one, already up 150% this year. We will reveal it next. You can tweet me your guesses at Kelly CNBC. We'll ask the analyst why he still sees more upside, about 20% more upside this year. We're back after this. Dow's up seven. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. J.P. Morgan's top internet analyst naming his top picks for 2024. Stores, subs, and search are all part of those picks. Let's bring in Doug Anmuth. He's head of J.P. Morgan's U.S. internet team. Doug, it's good to see you. Welcome. 
Thanks for having me, Kelly. Amazon's number one. How, how much upside? And what? why do they in particular come out on top here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, Amazon's been our favorite name in the group for a long time now. Um, certainly in 2023, uh, we saw a very good uh, improvement on the retail business, um, really in terms of execution, really kind of digging out of the challenges that they had during the COVID pandemic and saw some real progress with regionalization of the fulfillment network in the U.S. and very significant margin expansion. So we think that's a big part of the story that that continues in 2024. The other key component is uh, AWS, um, which has clearly been a little bit challenging over the last several quarters, just with optimizations and corporates looking to um, find ways to save some, some costs. But um, we think that's kind of easing now, and we're going to start to see new workload deployment in a bigger way in 24. And that drives reacceleration uh, in the cloud next year, in our view. And the combination of all those things um, really means significant free cash flow generation. I'm starting to see that already and comes up in a bigger way in 24. And you think they're kind of broadly going to experience reaccelerating revenue growth? Is that right? So I certainly think they will uh, in the cloud business, um, and we have a, a bit of acceleration in retail as well, um, more so in the early part of the year. But look, we think the consumer is holding up well, um, you know, more broadly speaking. But e-commerce in particular, we would just point to um, really e-commerce and cloud as, as two of the areas where we think there is room for very strong secular growth for many years to come. And we think about e-com as uh, just over 20% of total retail spending. Um, in our view, over many years, that could go to 35 to 40%, and that can just grind higher. Um, and cloud, the other big business for them, um, also certainly a, a sub-20% uh, you know, percent of workloads that we think is actually online. So you know, two, two big areas that have a lot of headroom. Wow. For Amazon. And Amazon's your top large cap pick. Uh, Google's also up there. in Uber, which was the mystery chart that we teased, I don't even think of this as an internet name. I mean, I understand that they use the internet, but it's, I think of it as a taxi company. Yes, un understood. Um, look, we, we continue to like Uber. It was a top pick for us in, in 23. That continues in, in 24. Uh, the business has proven extremely resilient across both mobility, the rides business, and then also in, in food delivery. Uh, we think that that continues, and we're really seeing a much stronger executional focus over the last several quarters. Um, that continues in 24, where incremental margins, we think, can continue to be very healthy, um, and that really drives uh, strong free cash flow generation. Um, what we think even could be uh, kind of early buybacks, potentially, and the recent, um, recently announced S&P inclusion as well, we think kind of creates a, a healthier shareholder base over time yeah. and broader set of investors looking at Uber. All right, fair enough. Let's turn to your smaller picks, which, you know, Match is maybe your top pick there. Vizio and EverQuote, ticker EVER. What does EverQuote do? Uh, so to be totally fair, uh, my, my colleague, Corey Carpenter, covers our, our mid-cap names. So he covers all of those names, um, Match, Vizio, and ever quote. Um, but certainly I know that his thesis really on on match is based on Tinder payers um, returning to growth 
um, some buyback support, and then also uh, valuation that's that's not demanding. So that would be his favorite name. Quick, uh, fi in this a quick final question. Sorry, Doug, I just wanted to ask you about online advertising as well before we have to let you go. A lot of weird cross currents there lately. What kind of year do you foresee for 2024? So for online advertising in 24, um, I agree. A lot of a lot of weird cross currents. You saw um, kind of a softer, let's say, first half of 23, and then firming up more in the middle and back half. And I, I think that's going to carry through into into 24. It's just a year from a stock perspective where we think it's more about company specific dynamics and um, ad tech improvements and um, you know ways that these companies can continue to drive efficiencies, but with the um, biggest impacts of privacy and some of the Apple changes from a couple of years ago, those should be behind. So still optimistic overall on growth in online ads. All right. 2023 is going to be a tough act to follow. So we appreciate you joining us, trying to, trying to figure it out. Doug, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Doug Anmuth joining us from JP Morgan. Coming up, Pfizer is the worst name in the S&P today, hitting a 10-year low after their 2024 guidance for revenue and profit was below estimates. Drug makers seeing continued slowdown in demand for COVID products and in turn is raising its planned cost cuts by $500 million to $4 billion. The shares are down 8% today, not how you usually respond to cost cuts. We'll look at more of the biggest movers ahead of the Fed move later or next on The Exchange. 27 minutes to go. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu with just about 25 minutes to go before that big Fed rate decision meeting and subsequent press conference later on this afternoon. Markets are in a very, very at least calm state right now. You can see just about flat across the entire market for the major indices and Dow Industrials, flat on the session. The S&P 500, 46.44, the last trade there, flat and just very marginal declines for the Nasdaq Composite, 14,523. One place that we are seeing some more activity is on the macro side of things. Check out what's happening now with oil prices, trying to find at least a little bit of a rebound here after this very near to medium term, short term downtrend. WTI West Texas Intermediate Crude Prices, $69.10, three quarters of 1% gain there. Same thing for Ice Brent Crude Futures, 73.85. Even natural gas prices, which have been very, very under pressure lately, are catching at least a little bit of a bid, so watch that. And then check out what's happening also with shares of at least Tesla after the recall, 2 million-plus vehicles, pretty much every car it's sold in America since 2012. Those shares down about 3% right now. It's going to roll out an update over the air to help fix some of those software issues. And then another stock to keep a close eye on is Take-Two Interactive. The video game publisher is getting a bid because it will be included in the NASDAQ 100 large cap index later on this month. Take-Two Interactive shares on a tear up 55% so far year to date, up of almost 3% right now. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. Dom, thank you very much. Dom Chu. Coming up, higher rates have typically been a negative for growthy tech stocks, but there's a silver lining for some this time around. We'll explain next on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your news update. The House of Representatives debating right now the impeachment inquiry resolution into President Biden. House Speaker Mike Johnson said he expects the inquiry to pass with Republicans likely to support it. A vote is expected to take place later this evening. Donald Trump's civil fraud trial wrapped today, ending nearly two months of testimony. The former president was scheduled to take the stand earlier this week in his own defense, but then decided not to. Both sides will present their closing arguments on January 11th, and the judge is expected to issue his verdict sometime in the next month.
Oprah Winfrey shared with People magazine for this week's cover story that she has been taking a weight loss medication. Winfrey said she uses the medication as a tool to manage her weight and that she had to overcome shame about using it. The media mogul did not disclose which medication she is using. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, thank you very much, Tyler Matheson. Just a couple of minutes away from the latest rate decision, the Fed's rapid pace of hikes over the past couple of years has had a surprising effect on some of the most rate-sensitive stocks. Dear Jabosa, following the dynamics in high-growth, unprofitable tech stocks for today's Tech Check. Deirdre? Kelly, you could also call it junkier tech. Well, it's already been making its comeback. And if we do get a dovish Fed this afternoon, it could underpin this rally and give them even more room to run. Now, part of the reason for their comeback isn't just interest rates. It's that the interest rate environment has led to better fundamentals. Take Unity, Wix, Zillow, Palantir, and Pinterest. They've just gone through their own year or years of efficiency, and they've come out with leaner workforces, cost cuts, and public commitments to be more disciplined. As a result, they have seen step-ups in free cash flow margins. This is a chart from Bank of America. It looks at Wall Street expectations for free cash flow as a percentage of revenue margins. It tells us that analysts are expecting major expansion at these companies over the next few years. Unity from about 10% this year to double that next year. Wix, similar story. Less dramatic step-ups, but expansion nonetheless for Zillow, Pins, and Palantir as well, reaching mid-20s to 30s in 2025. A note of caution, though, these are just estimates, and even B of A allows for this. These hockey stick-like inflections in tech, they can be misleading in that they are difficult to sustain, plus smaller-cap tech stocks. They tend to underperform in a downturn, but against the potential of a soft landing, if you think that's what's going to happen, and a market that might value growth again next year, they could be well-positioned, guys. Mm. And I guess you know there are also those who want to argue, maybe, that uh, some of these moves don't have anything to do with the Fed, you know, that uh, not, not about interest rates, not about, but at some point, you know, at least if you're a startup, cost of capital is probably your biggest thing. Right. And even if you're unprofitable as well. Right. And, and I think that's the point is that the fundamentals are getting slightly better and maybe in a different interest rate environment that could make them more compelling buys. And B of A also looked at their valuations and saw that they've become a little more compelling over the last year. Yeah. More compelling equals, you know, less exorbitant and outrageous, I think. Yes. Uh, so yes. Nicer We're way coming to say it. from a very high level. Exactly. Deirdre, thank you very much. <laughs> Our dear Jabosa. Coming up, mortgage rates are still above 7%, credit card APRs are at a record high, and rates for new and used car loans are near 8%. Could the Fed decision in just a few minutes bring any relief for consumers? We will explore that next on The Exchange. Welcome back. The economy has held up better than expected this year. The unemployment rate is near a 50-year low. Wage growth outpacing inflation once again. GDP mo- rose more than 5% last quarter. So why don't people feel better? Could be a few reasons. Like this, both carried balances and interest rates on credit cards are near record highs after all the Fed's hikes. Delinquencies are jumping now to nearly 3%, a level not seen since 2012, nearly double the 1.5% rate from a couple of years ago. Just how big of a red flag is that for the economy? Let's ask Ted Rossman, Bankrate.com senior industry analyst. And, you know, I, I mean, so far people have said, okay, it's moving in the wrong. Maybe we, I would say we've heard a little bit more concern from from earnings season, from some of the companies maybe on the front lines of these deteriorating trends. Yeah, I think it depends where you are on the spectrum for consumers, but also for these card issuers. Like American Express is doing really well because they have a more affluent customer base. They're not as likely to be delinquent. They're spending a lot on travel and holiday gifts. 
you have some of the store card issuers, some of the more subprime issuers, they're not doing as well. And I think that's indicative of the, the customer environment right now. In general, credit's still flowing freely. Originations are within about 2% of the all-time high set last year. But we're starting to see some tightening, especially on the margins, people with lower incomes and lower credit scores. So should the Fed cut rates? Would that help? I don't think it makes that much of a difference for credit cards, just because these rates are high, period. I mean, right now, the average is a record high, 20.72%. I mean, honestly, even if that fell three or four or five points, it would still be high. So that's where the advice is pay it off if you can. To my surprise, 0% balance transfer offers are still widely available. Hmm. I think that speaks to the strong job market and the fact that delinquencies, while they're up, are still relatively low, all things considered. People are carrying debt, but they're paying it back. So that's why credit's still flowing. Overall, on the, on the kind of the macro level, it seems the, the balance sheets are nowhere near as stretched as they were before the great financial crisis. Well, that's what's so interesting, too. The household debt-to-income ratio is very low, historically speaking. So I think that flies in the face of some of these other trends, which are highest credit card rates ever, highest credit card balances ever. I mean, you don't have to look too far to find negativity, the fact that the delinquency rate has doubled in two years. But the other side is that debt-to-income ratio is pretty low. It gets back to sentiment, though. None of this feels good because of inflation. Most people are doing okay, but again, it depends where you are on the spectrum. Lower gas prices have to be delivering at least some conceptual relief and, and some actual relief. Psychologically, yes. I mean, also in terms of expenditures, I think psychologically more than anything. That's one that we just see every day driving around. The fact that wage growth is outpacing inflation now, we want to see more of that. It's really a mixed bag, and it really speaks to that K-shaped economy where some people are doing quite well, others are struggling. I do worry that cracks are starting to emerge in terms of delinquencies, but also, you know, where do we go from here? Do we kind of level off or if the job market gets worse, do we see more of a substantial rise in delinquencies? What usually happens? Traditionally, the credit card charge-off rate matches the unemployment rate. Hmm. So we really look to that as a major indicator. Banks don't seem too concerned right now. I mean, it seems that they're still talking about normalization. We've actually gone a little past normal in terms of like, we've surpassed 2019 levels of delinquency. Now we're back to more like 2012, which was that great recession recovery period. It remains to be seen. I think banks are expecting that rate to level off. They're not expecting it to continue to jump, but it bears watching, and I think the job market's a big part of it. What about the autos piece of this? We mentioned that those borrowing rates are very high, and obviously those prices went up a lot during the pandemic. What, what, what is, how does that impact people? Subprime auto delinquencies are worse now than during the financial crisis. So wow. I think that's probably even more of a worry than credit cards right now. I think a lot of it speaks to how much car prices are up. That's been an even bigger factor than rates, I would say. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like a lot of relief coming there. So in many cases, the option is either stick with what you've got for longer or bite the bullet and pay the higher prices. But that's getting some people into trouble from a financing standpoint. And what happens next after, you know, if they run into trouble, does the car go away? I mean, what 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 walk us through the chain of events, both on the consumer side and maybe on the financer side? Yeah, it doesn't take long to see a repossession. I mean, you miss a payment or two. They're much stricter, certainly, than credit cards. Or another aspect of this whole consumer lending thing is the whole buy now, pay later craze. The fact that that was up more than 40 percent 
year over year on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. I see that as a warning sign if we talk about consumers' willingness to spend, but also how are they going to pay for it? I think that's one to watch, it's too. It's been a great debate. We've spoken with some of the providers who say, you know, it's not. It's just a sign of the times. It's actually a better product than credit cards and all that. And then there's others. It's interesting to hear your skepticism about it. I think it can encourage overspending. Just the fact that, oh, it's not $200. It's four easy payments of 50 bucks. You know, sometimes that adds up more than people realize and more than lenders realize, too, because most of these are not reported on credit reports. I think there needs to be more visibility there. I know the industry is working on it. It's been slow going. Yeah, to say the least. <laughs> Maybe this will encourage them to move in that direction. Ted, for now, we appreciate it. A final thing, what are you listening for most with the Fed move today? The market seems to be pricing in something like a full point or even a point and a quarter of cuts next year. I think Powell might throw cold water on that. I mean, that that seems like a big jump. Aggressive. Mm -hmm. And and if he does, we know how the reaction will likely go over. (laughs) Uh, Well, we will find out in a few minutes' time. Ted, thanks again. We appreciate it today. Of course, thanks. Ted Rossman with Bankrate. Before we go, there's still time to register for tomorrow's CNBC Small Business Playbook New Year New Playbook (laughs) Strategies and Opportunities in 2024. To sign up, just scan that QR code on your screen or head over to cnbcevents.com. That does it for us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.